Uh, well, thank you very much, Lord Desai, uh, Professor Callahan, and uh, my friends. Uh, I should admit that they are friends, uh, Professor Rana Mitter and uh, Stephen Foishwang. So uh, I'm sure they will be gentle in their, uh, relatively speaking, in their comments. And uh, so, but um, I am delighted uh, to be here. We've been looking forward to this event. And uh, my editor uh, is also here, uh, Dr. Lucy Reimer, who has helped me a great deal uh, in writing this book. And uh, so let me uh, proceed without further ado, talking about the book, because we don't have so much time. And I want to really hear the others as well and their, their commentaries. Uh, this is a picture that some of you will notice is on the cover of the book. And um, just, you know, you, you'll see it around. So uh, somehow we forgot to put the full annotation on it. So, but it gives uh, me an opportunity to discuss what this picture is about. Well, it is uh, a group of protesters who call themselves Cambodia's avatars. Avatars appealing uh, to the Cambodian government to save the Prelang forest. So they are indigenous people of the Prelang forest who are um, using the title of avatar. Avatar, for those of you who are in Asian studies who may be familiar, is um, the reincarnated being and it's an ancient Hindu Buddhist idea. But uh, what what is happening here is that they are using the expression uh, via the Hollywood movie, Avatar. And uh, so what it is is that, of course, there's a slight uh, problem in that the Avatars in the Hollywood movie were not the Aboriginal people, or I don't know if they were people or not in that continent, uh, in that planet, but uh, it was really the humans who went in their different avatars. But nonetheless, they, they decided to depict themselves as the forest beings and uh, so re-invoke what is there, an ancient idea among these people uh, to appeal to, for, uh, to their cause and to draw attention to their cause. So this is an expression of what I would call, which is a very important concept in the book, uh, circulatory history, right? It is a history which returns to the people via many different global routes uh, uh, to serve a somewhat different uh, project or a goal, but is very much part of the history as well. So the, one of the, as I say, the most important things I try to do in the book is to try and establish history as a circulatory form. So not circular, but it circulates in different areas and comes around and gets transformed in the way. And the, what I want to do with is, is to try to substitute the idea of, the dominant idea of history that we have, which is linear, tunneled, and bounded histories of uh, nations or civilizations or peoples and so on. Uh, so let me talk a little bit more about how I think about this idea of histories as circulatory. Uh, you know, events can have uh, effects that disperse massively over time, right? Uh, we think that an event is focused in a time and place. But of course, you know, a war in one place can have effects on prices in a third and a fourth and a fifth place 
It can affect political coalitions many, many uh, uh, thousands of miles away. And it can do many other things. And, uh, and I give you an example from my own personal history, or the history of my ancestors, which is the, uh, the story of the Ahoms. Let me take you to the next slide. The Ahoms, do we have a, a pointer? You know, where it says China, and then it says India, there is in that northeast corner of India and southwest part of China, there is the Brahmaputra River. Uh, the Brahmaputra Valley, and the Brahmaputra Valley was ruled for about six centuries by a group called the Ahoms, and the word Assam then comes from the Ahoms, although the people are all mixed, they're not necessarily Ahom. But uh, what happens is that the Ahoms used to live in an area in a kingdom in southwest China, in Yunnan, called the Dailue Kingdom, which was a Buddhist kingdom that was never conquered by the Chinese. It is not till the Mongols, who established the empire in southwest China, that they conquered not only the Dailue, but also Burma. And uh, what happened was, during those decades of instability in the 13th and 14th centuries, the Ahum uh, people, who had a different name at that time, were pushed out and they moved into the Brahmaputra Valley. Right? They conquered the people there and kept out Mughal forces and so on for until the British in the 1820s. Uh, they, they retained their independence because they had very good uh, river technology and knowledge of river systems and so on in that area. So, uh, so and... Um, uh, people of my background were often, uh, well, my, the ancestors were often served. Dwara, in fact, refers to the customs officials of the doors and uh, served in the Ahom Kingdom. So I'm trying to tell you something, a very distant if, uh, event uh, like the Mongol invasion affected places which we had, which we thought had no connection to such uh, <laughs> kinds of events, right? So let me go back here. Now, it is not only uh, circulatory uh, or events which have impacts that are dispersed and diffused all over. It is also narratives that are formed. Now, think of narratives. Narratives are, of course, the ways you represent, you write your histories of, of events. And uh, if you think of how a mid-19th century or even a mid-20th century imperialist victory may have been celebrated through imperial histories, whether British or Japanese or whatever. You see how they're de depicted now because the narrative has been appropriated by different sets of people. In fact, in places like Japan, there is the concern that the textbooks that young Japanese people will have to read will not be narratives written by the nation builders and empire builders of the early 20, of the first half of the 20th century, but by comfort women and Taiwanese aborigines, right, who will have their contributions. So, so you can see here the whole dispersal, the circulatory effect of what happens with histories and so on, just as a sort of sense. So what is the point of what I'm trying to do here? The point, I think, is basically to show that histories should not be seen as exclusive, bounded histories of a people. Histories are very much part of a shared heritage. They circulate in and out. They have different effects. You look at how 
for instance, Marxism comes into China. It comes in from various different sources, from the Soviet Union, from France, from Japan. What happens in China, it is transformed, right? It circulates and is transformed into a peasant movement, whereas earlier it was a working class movement. And then when it goes out of China, as Marxism, Leninism, and Mao Zedong thought, where does it go? It doesn't go to peasant societies. It goes to tribal societies, right? You, you look at uh, uh, southern Mexico, the Chiapas, you look at uh, central India, you look at Nepal, you look at all these places. So how does it become adapted and transformed and circulated? This is the common heritage, I think, that we... And so why do I want to emphasize this? I want to emphasize this because I think that the role that history has played, while it's certainly been enabling and has had multi multiple purposes, also allows us or allows nation states and custodians of nation states to argue for their unique sovereignty. By having a unique history, we are a unique people, we have a sovereign claim, and nobody dare tell us to do anything. Well, this is now a time and place where we have to listen to each other, and we have to recognize that, uh, in fact, um, the... Uh, uh, so, uh, history cannot be the basis of your sovereignty because it is shared very much uh, with uh, the world. In fact, if you think of it, uh, you realize that national, that nations themselves from the 19th till the mid-20th century and later were themselves circulatory forms. You know, I, I can still uh, remember when I was growing up as a child in India, and in most other Asian societies, a child was a child till the age of five or six or seven. After that, for most families, they were sent to the fields, they had to labor, and they were laborers, right? And uh, what happens? New na national constitutions all over the world has a child being, being a child with certain functions, duties, responsibilities till the age of 18. And everybody has that, right? So, I mean, you have more in common with a national somewhere else than you have with anything in your own society, in your older society, right? And this is the case in every, you know, national histories all look the same. They have the same mode of periodization. They have the same technologies of renaissance and things like that. So, I mean, you do get a lot of... So the nation itself is a circulatory form. Uh, quite apart from the technologies like hertz and anthems and all of these kinds of things. So why is it that this global circulatory provenance of the nation gets misrecognized into these sovereign history? Well, it's a question of, I mean, there's a big question that I do try to go into, but just to give you a brief summary, it is to say that there are... Uh, it also becomes, the idea of a bounded linear history becomes very much tied to the breakdown of a universal system of rule where somebody, where there's a moral order in which people follow rules, right? Here you are. And this then fits in very much with the capitalist revolution in which uh, in, the, uh, in the middle of the, or the second half of the uh, second millennium, which becomes very much tied in with... Um, the scientific revolution and with competitive capitalism that are often the groundwork of which is done by the nation state, right? So nationalism becomes a big part of this story. 
And then once you get the idea, once you get the destruction, the, the fall of universal transcendent ideals, you also have the idea that there is no greater supernatural or universal power to constrain the ability of humans to conquer nature and go out and get the world, right? To conquer people, to conquer nature. And so what we do is we are now at the end, oh, towards the end, later point of that transition where we call it the Anthropocene, where for those of you who are unfamiliar with the word, it means it is an era which many natural scientists and uh, geologists, geologists uh, agree is one where the humans are affecting nature more than any other force in the world, right? And it is really leading to the crisis of sustainability, which is one of the most important crises that the book talks about and how we go about it. And it has very much to do with national histories and with the loss of uh, transcendent powers in the world and all of these kinds of things. So the salvation of the world is today is still more urgent. It is not needed more physically than metaphorically. Planetary sustainability, I argue, should become the transcendent goal of our times. Now, that is not to say that I'm saying go back to religion. Uh, but what I am doing is looking at how religion was an earlier form, universal religions were an earlier form that created some kind of methodology of linking the personal to the, to the natural environment and to the world and to the universe, right? And there is a relationship that we need to recultivate rather than just competitive nationalism and consumerism. So what is the possibility of sustainability um, as a transcendent ideal? Uh, the main obstacle, it seems to me, is the imperative of national leaders to not sacrifice national interests. Whenever you hear about uh, these uh, global agreements for, cli uh, uh, for climate change and so on, it's very hard to get an agreement because, you know, the, the U.S. says that first the Chinese must do this and the Chinese says that we are a developing country, the U.S. must do this, and they are all these national mitigation. In fact, there's a very interesting proposal, a very simple proposal, and of course it's probably too simple, but most... Uh, environmental groups, NGOs, and many intergovernmental groups also believe it's a very practical, it's the sort of most practical possibility. Outlined by Mutsuyoshi Nishimura, who was the uh, climate change representative the, uh, of the Japanese government during the Kyoto uh, climate change uh, uh, protocols, and where he has a proposal to for collectively capped carbon budget which should be at 660 uh, billion gigaton uh, in total emissions between 2010 and 2050. And he had a plan for that these carbon credits should be collectively owned and should be auctioned off on a pollution, polluter pays principle. And he has handicap provisions and so on. But they never work. I think uh, despite enormous in support from environmental activists, and they have become the biggest players now in terms of, of course, the nation states and national representatives do the acting, but the pressure points are precisely from these NGO groups and so on right now. And there is all this. There was a very important uh, landmark deal, and I think it is symbolically very important, although 
we don't know its reality effects between China and the United States in November 2014 when they both agreed. For the first time, somebody agreed, and these two major powers in the world agreed to do some cutting. Of course, the problem is that it will never get through Congress in the U.S., and the Chinese have lots of escape clauses as well. So, but nonetheless, at least it was a symbolic move in that uh, direction. So as I say, the most important major path in the world is through this transnational civil society in alliance and conjunction with the most important groups who are being affected by climate change. And these are these vulnerable, precarious communities in remote villages and towns and seacoast areas and forest areas all over, and I'm working on Asia, so I'll refer to Asia, but they're, of course, all over the world, but particularly in Asia. And the other important thing about Asia is that these people are still very much uh, affected. Uh, they still they don't live in an entirely disenchanted world like many of us in the modern cities do. These people still believe that nature has a certain sacrality, it provides for them, and they often appeal to uh, natural uh, forces uh, or supernatural forces to protect their nature and their livelihoods. So there's a very interesting kind of, uh, if not an alliance, but a coming together of certain uh, NGOs and civil society groups, whether they're at the local level, at the national level, or global level, very important uh, connections that are developing in this new media space that I want to try and talk about. And these are weak, but I consider them resilient forces that can come up and, above, uh, and rise again and again, in part because uh, they have this capacity now to appeal to a whole different range uh, you know, of possibilities. And I'll give you one or two examples before I close off. And then I say that you know, for these people, more than anyone else in Asia, they're their traditions, their uh, religious traditions or their cultural traditions are still very important. And uh, there has been a kind of linking up between these NGOs, between intergovernmental organizations, within segments of the bureaucracy and so on that are interested in the case. And they use the pre-existing sort of cosmologies to their benefit uh, or to be able to protect their environment. So in many parts of Asia, communities are resisting this effort, and they're using whatever resources they have, mostly religious resources. Taoism, animism, Buddhism, Christianity, Hinduism are being utilized to protect the resources of the community. And, uh, and they often, uh, you know, in, especially in, in places now, even in remote places in China, when there is a big company that wants to come and do deforestation or do mining and so on, you, you get communities that organize around temple communities or that organize around other kinds of uh, uh, solitary communities to protest that. Now, most of these are, tend to be what we call NIMBY organization, not in my backyard. You can take it somewhere else, but not here. The point of sort of linking up with higher levels of scales of civil society organizations and so on is that they can provide some kind of basis of translating these local efforts into a wider, uh, a more universalistic 
project, right? And I want to give you one or two. Even in a place like China, which until four years ago had only 2,700 officially noted uh, ENGOs, environmental NGOs, now has 8,000 of them. So that is one area that is being allowed to survive. Well, how much they're allowed to do is another matter now with the current government. But they are flourishing, and they're connecting, and they're very important ways. For instance, I'll give you just this one example. In uh, 1995, when the Three Gorges Dam was being built, you know, initially they got funding from all different global agencies, U.S. government, French government, U.K., as well as World Bank, IMF, and Morgan Stanley, and so on. Daiching, who represented much of the environmental movement in China at that time, wrote a book called, um, called Yangtze Yangtze in 1995, which alerted the global civil society about the problems with the Yangtze Dam. What happens is that these people mobilized to such an extent that they could not get resources from the World Bank or the IMF or from the governments and could not even get resources from uh, the, uh, these uh, investment banks because their, their shareholders had been lobbied. So ultimately it became much more expensive in 2000 when China had to build the second uh, tranche to get resources for the second tranche of the Yangtze, right? So you can see the kinds of effects that these can have, right? And it is no surprise that today one of the things that Mo the Modi government is fighting in India are NGOs in a very big way. And that is because they're claiming that they are getting producing developmental problems. And I can see there are tensions there, but there has to be a way to work out these kinds of issues. And one of the interesting things that has happened in China is that Lao Tzu, you know, the famous Taoist uh, uh, god, has been transformed into an environmental god, which is not incompatible with what is, but he's actually called the Shanghai uh, Pao Shen. Or, and, you know, whenever you go to a, a, a Taoist temple in China, now you can, you burn only three sticks of incense. They are now have to do all kinds of accountability for, you know, uh, environmental transparency and so on and so forth. So these things are happening. They're not necessarily the big items, but small things are sort of, here's an example. In fact, this Taoist Association did this with a British group called the Alliance of Religious and Conservation, which is the head of which is Prince Philip, and, and they're based in Bath. And so that's uh, an interesting development here. And here is, uh, India has, of course, some very well-developed. Uh, so what I want to say is that, and this is the last point I will make, that finally, these, uh, this group of people, we have not really, most of us have not really noticed what they're doing. This motley coalition of different forces are finally having an effect. So, for instance, there was a decision in the Indian Supreme Court in 2013 to recognize the tribal group from Orissa called the Korns. The Korns occupied a forest region in eastern India that had been stripped for bauxite mining, right? And these people, with the help of NGOs and with their own NGOs, sued uh, these companies, and the case went up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court agreed that this region, the Kond region, was a sacred site of the uh, Kond people and cannot be used for strip mining for bauxite and so on, right? So there are all these, and you've had lots of movements like this. And I think you are, in case you think that I'm just talking from the top of some 
entirely aspirational. Mostly it is aspirational and normative, but uh, it's not entirely so because already we begin to see that 12% of the world's surface has been protected by one way or the other. A lot, yes, I would say that there are 160,000 legally protected areas in the world, national and international, including about 1,000 World Heritage Sites uh, that are mostly natural heritage. Sometimes they are uh, uh, biodiversity heritage. Sometimes they're cultural heritage sites. As well. Include the Eastern Himalaya regions is in the Yunnan, Tibet area is a very important area that has now become that way. And uh, these uh, cover over 12% of the land. They're the common heritage of humankind as well they should be declared. Some studies have shown that they have actually reduced rates of deforestation. In my view, these spaces are inviolable, right? They're sacred in the sense, not necessarily in, a, in the traditional religious sense, but they are sacred in the sense that they're inviolable. They're protected from uh, the excesses around them, right? And so at least this is the partially the le legacy of what we might call an ecological spirituality, which I believe <coughs> that we should be working to promote. And I'll just leave you with a picture of the total percentage of each country under protections. You see that Kazakhstan is one of the worst. <laughs> um, the US, as you can expect, and Canada is, uh, is because they have huge amounts of uh, wild areas still is still relatively protected. Okay, so I'll leave it at that. Thank oh, you. Well, thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much. I was thinking I'll let you have another 10 minutes, but oh. you, have, you have voluntarily given them up. So you'll get more at the end. Okay. Now, have you tossed a coin and decided who goes first? Half a best. You're going to go first. Okay, you go first. You're the local, so Agi, he's local as well. So. Yeah, two locals. Two locals, yeah. Three. 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 Yeah. William, Professor William Kalai. Okay, well, thank you, um, Lord Desai, and thank you, Prasenjit, for writing this book. Uh, my first reaction is, wow. It's, it's an incredible book that really addresses the main issue that should concern us all about the lack of uh, global sustainability of the consumerist capitalist model of modernity. And the way that Prasenjit goes about analyzing it is also quite radical. That I think he and I have the same sort of theoretical sympathies that we're so-called critical theorists who are suspicious of master narratives. So therefore, uh, we're suspicious of things like utopia, suspicious of sort of seeking, dealing with the big, big um, problems with big answers. But what Prasenjit does in this book is he argues quite persuasively that we can have a big answer to this big problem, um, that he says that we need to have a, a new form of transcendence, a new sort of, in a way, re religiosity um, that is not the sort of transcendence and, and religiosity that you see in Christianity and Judaism and Islam, the Abrahamic, Abrahamic uh, religions, but what he calls a dialogical transcendence, which is um, really quite interesting because I guess the way I would describe it is that he's trying to, he, as he said, he's trying to transcend the notion of competing nationalisms. That's what he's trying to transcend and competing sort of individualisms 
um, to see the world in terms of a uh, community of shared destiny. Um, and I thought that the way he argues his case actually follows from his kind of more specific. So this is a grand book about grand things. Um, but it also speaks to some of the books he's written, books and articles he's written before about redemptive societies in China, about how the kind of three, three religions are one, that you can be Buddhist, Confucian, and Taoist, even though there's lots of contradictions between them. But in China, with these redemptive societies in the uh, 19th and 20th century, people were able to negotiate to be all three or to be certain things, so that this contradiction was not a problem. And I think that's the sort of thing that he's trying to do, especially when he talks about, he talked about a motley coalition of environmental groups. I think what he's putting together is a motley coalition of ideas, um, <laughs> which I find really interesting. Um, I, I guess I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the monologue, or sorry, the monologue, that's me. <laughs> the epilogue at the end, because the epilogue about 10 pages or so at the very end, um, really is a call to arms. Um, and it's arguing that we need to shift from thinking just in terms of reasoned argument. So he has 300 pages of reasoned arguments, heavily footnoted, really kind of thoroughly grounded arguments. But in, in the epilogue, I see him saying, OK, we've done the reasonable stuff. We've done the logical argument. Now we have to have something else. And what he's, what he's telling us that we need to do is look beyond these reasoned arguments to think in terms of aspirations, dreams, and hope. Specifically, hope is what he talks about. Um, and what he does is he, he uh, says that hope, he, he positions hope as something that is undeconstructible, which is very interesting. I never, never heard of that before. Um, but it really speaks to the sort of things that I've been looking at. And it's a very, what's nice about it is a very optimistic um, ending about, yes, we can do things. We can solve these problems. And to me, this, this uh, struck a chord because it made me think again about some of the research that I've been doing. So this is actually what I think a book should do, is not just tell me stuff, but sort of provoke me to think anew about stuff that I'm doing. Um, what I've been doing lately is thinking about <clears throat> emotion in politics and films in particular. So that's why I put that video up there. It's a specific kind of film that's supposed to tug at your heartstrings. Um, and I've been talking about affect theory. And that really speaks, seems to speak to what you're doing a lot, that affect theory is a very complex and abstract and annoying topic. It's very hard to pin it down. Uh, but generally, it seeks to shift our critical focus from facts to look at feelings, um, from stable individual identity to multiple flows of encounter, from text to nonlinear, non-linguistic, and non-representational genres, and from abstract rational knowledge to embodied forms of knowledge. And that's what I see you doing in the epilogue or, or mm. pointing in that direction. And so what I think that you've done the text, you've written the book, you've made the rational argument, what I think you should do now is make a film. <laughs> you need to kind of challenge Simon Shama and make a better film. So it's not you kind of walking out in a battlefield, which is a typical Simon Shama history film. But I think that this, this topic really uh, lends itself to a film. And, and it's already, I mean, we've seen in the past three or four months how films in China really kind of start things going. So on February 28th, Chai Ling, a former Chinese Central Television um, 
reporter or newscaster, she uh, released her film, Under the Dome, which is about pollution and how pollution oh, yeah. oh, is killing people in China. And it was, it was on the web without censorship for a week, and over 300 million people viewed it, or 300 million views of it, which is huge, huge, bigger than most countries. And um, what she did in that film is she appealed to emotion. She starts off by telling a story about how she got pregnant, she was really happy, then she got her first uh, scan and saw the baby had a tumor. So this baby, even before it's born, her daughter had a tumor. So she has the baby. It turns out it's a benign tumor. But right as soon as the baby's born, she says that the, the doctor had to snatch the baby away even before she'd seen it and go and uh, kind of take out the tumor. So the baby had surgery before it was an hour old. So my point is, is that she's really pulling at heartstrings here. She's really kind of saying, I'm a mother. I'm a mother not just to my child, but to all of China and all of the world. And it was a very effective way of arguing her point. Um, now, some people, especially people who study uh, visual culture, are very actually unsympathetic to this. People, I found, because I just started studying visual culture and visual politics, and the one thing that really comes out is that people who study visual culture don't like visual culture, <laughs> that, they're, that they're suspicious of it, that they think that, oh, you know, George W. Bush used images to dupe us all into the um, Iraq war, that kind of thing. Um, and even in China, uh, Chai Ling, right away, the, the kind of Chinese reaction, one of the reactions was, oh, well, who's she a front for? Who, whose interest is she serving? Mm. Um, kind of what, so she's against the oil company, but, you know, who is she, you know, she must be an instrument of somebody. Um, but I think that uh, what is good about the visual is that it allows us to kind of go beyond this sort of deconstruction or this hermeneutic urge to sort of always look for some hidden meaning and just be happy that you can kind of reach people, that you can touch them. Um, and that, that's why I, I thought that that uh, uh, film by Jia Zhangke, probably the most famous uh, Chinese director right now, he was commissioned by Greenpeace China to make a seven-minute film about the environment and pollution. And what he did is he made a film with no dialogue. There's not a word spoken in it at all. And it's all about people. And you hear people cough. And you see people living. And you see people going to the doctor. And to me, it's just a very interesting way of making the points that you're making. So that's, I guess we'll end there, is that I think, I think you can do it. I think that I would, I would pay money to see your film. <laughs> You'll make it. Oh, wait, two more minutes. Uh, nope, that's all I have to say. So I, I enjoyed the book. I'm waiting for the movie. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, I think we ought to get Rana Mitra go, or, or you want, yeah. Rana, you want to go next? I think Stefan's next. I'm next. You okay. go. Okay. Let's see people are really pushy on this. He gets the last word. <laughs> That's no, 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 I get the last word. <laughs> That's what I'm sitting in a chicken. I'm very glad that Prasenjit has uh, left that map up, because... I was going to use the analogy of cartography and projections to describe Prasenjit's book. Uh, that's a Mercator's projection. And, uh, and what's more, it's turned to, central, yeah. to centralized Europe. Yeah, sure. And you, can, you can turn them around, you know, so that you centralize Australia or China. I'm, 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 I'm slightly shocked that you didn't actually put, put Asians at the center. 
Um, but what's, what's the, what Presentit's book does is not only change the geohistorical, the geohistorical of the world, um, but uh, it's, it's no longer Mercator's projection or the, or the uh, linear histories that we're so used to and which he's been writing against since his very first book. Um, it's a projection of roots. What he, he's, he's writing about circulatories, um, traffic, all the terms he uses is about very long-term processes of, of, um, of mutual influence and exchange, um, which, which pass through and pass across uh, borders, which initially are certainly not national borders, but now are. Um, and, and, uh, and so it's a completely different way of seeing and a different methodology of doing history, geographically. And, uh, and I, I thoroughly admire it and think it's, it is the way we should be thinking. But one point I want to make, and you could tell there was a but coming, mm-hmm. um, is that these are very long-term processes. And those long-term processes of the way in which we have been uh, historically on long-term, very long, many hundreds of years, been influenced by each other um, across the globe, or smaller routes, but certainly across <coughs> large distances, um, can't deal with the time span can't deal with the urgency of the global crisis about which the book is and which it seeks to address. So it's, it's uh, reading the book one is immediately induced into thinking how can a similar consciousness of and alliance networks is a favorite term of everybody but it's also Prasenjit's um, terms well those coalitions or networks, how can they influence us? Um, how can we jointly influence in time to prevent our destruction of the world? That's what the book is about. It's about our, the, our capacities, not just capacities, but actual acts which in aggregate are in danger of destroying the world. Not nature, but at least the world upon which we depend. Which is a very short time span. It's sort of 2050. Mm. Um, and and uh, so that's one thing that I'm, mm. I, I'm going to sort of harp on about in different ways. Um, but then I, in the meantime, I want to, I mean, I'll come back to it. Uh, <clears throat> I want to take up the term of uh, transcendence and dialogic transcendence in particular, um, which he is also promoting. It's a way in which we can think beyond ourselves into something which is beyond self and beyond self-other self-other definitions, you define yourself as against others, particularly against national others. Um, How can we get beyond that? 
How do we get beyond that? And so his book is uh, as um, Max Weber as a sociologist first started to do is a way of trying to grapple with the cosmologies as I would call them and as he calls them other people call them religions but they're a great deal more than just doctrinal religions in fact most of them are not doctrinal um, uh, and Weber called them magic um, the, 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 the senses of the world which uh, have existed throughout uh, civilization and civilization is as old as humanity in my uh, in my reconception of it, um, is uh, how, how can that be enhanced, uh, remembered, uh, be revived, as indeed it has been in China as everywhere else, um, into a more, uh, another kind of narrative than was, than was the narrative of the rituals and, and cosmologies of past times. This is a narrative which is more teleological. Um, and that's what his book wants, to, wants us to, 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 to think about. How can we join in a mutual transcendence? Now, the source of some of this thinking is the so-called axial civilizations, which was a concept developed post-Max Weber by Karl Jaspers, a German Swiss uh, German writing <coughs> and, uh, philosopher and psychologist phenomenological psychologist um, who um, developed this notion of which was an enlightenment notion uh, of humanity as a project how can we become human who is it that we can take as inspirations to become as human as we potentially could be, as distinct from being humans who destroy each other. And the, 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 the philosopher with whom I'm, I want to draw Prasenjit's attention, I, I, I mean, I know you've read her work, but the philosopher who is a political philosopher, Hannah Arendt, with whom there was a great correspondence between her and Karl Jaspers um, has another notion of dialogue if mm. you like right? Well, you call it dialogic transcendence mm. hers is the notion of human transcendence which is dialogical in the sense that we each affirm our differences from each other and acknowledge them that is local differences in which we have our own senses of belonging but also Maybe doctrinal differences, but in order, but dialogue can take place, and political action, as she calls it, can take place through our acknowledgement of those differences, and 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 how, and this is, and and that dialogue is therefore always provisional. Political politics is always provisional, and the kind of politics that she was promoting is one in which we are aware of our differences. And I'm just suggesting to Prasenjit that he can, uh, I don't know, accommodate that kind of pol 
kind sure. of notion of politics. Politics. Mm-hmm. Um, Two more minutes. Two more minutes only, right. Okay, so I come to the, <coughs> to, the, to, the, to the point that I said I'd come back to, which is that the, the redemptive societies and these coalitions of many organizations with a sense of transcendence quite different from, and he gives a wonderful comparison in history, from the, 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 the transcendences of monotheistic confessional um, exclusions. How can we develop a universalism that is not exclusive? Everybody thinks that they know what the world is like. How can we deal with ones that can say, uh, okay, your sense of the world is different from my world, um, but we can, we can have dialogue across that. Um, his examples are always ones in which the, the, the coalitions are of civic organizations, as you will have gathered from this, and, and, the, and not of states. But, as he just said, it's through, it's the actions take place through states. So one has to think, he is encouraging us to think, what could be a more urgent organization that can influence states more successfully than they have done so far? I mean, in China, he, his example is of the, um, the, the new dams and how they were prevented by civic organizations. But they did so through policy change done by local and then Wen Jiabao's central government. Um, so what would it be? Uh, how can we, in this country, through social media possibly, oppose the Murdoch and the, the, the dominant media who have put the Tories back in. Um, a, 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 it's so-called a non-compassionate uh, who pretend to be compassionate and pretend to be ecologically conscious but betrayed all their promises on both counts. Who, 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 you know, in, in terms of national interest in their relationships to the federation in which we already are uh, involved, which is the European Federation. It's, 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 it's as local as that. How can uh, we, as civic organizations, uh, create another world than that envisaged by the Tories <laughs> and their region? Okay. Rather. True. Their policies are no good at all. All right, thanks very much. And uh, it's, in a sense, a rather terrifying prospect after three such erudite presentations to have to go last in the sequence. But on the other hand, after I have shut up in a relatively short period of time, there'll be a chance for uh, a lot of discussion, I hope, from the floor. And we'll open this, uh, open this out. I'd like to start by adding to the chorus of praise for this book. 
Um, presented has written something unsurprising to those who've known his work over the decades, um, a work of immense ambition. Uh, he appears to have read in a whole variety of languages and for a whole variety of traditions um, a great deal of work in politics, in philosophy, um, and in ecology, saving the rest of us the trouble of reading the many hundreds of monographs you appear to have read to uh, put this together, presented, and thereby enabling us to look just as clever as you are, but with rather less of the effort. So for that, we have to be immensely grateful. It's also rarer than it should be to see someone in the academy actually taking up agendas that matter in the world beyond the university. Some of us find it hard to believe that there is such a world, but it does exist, and it's important, and I think actually urgent, to see those of us in this particular profession engaging with what goes on outside in this sort of away. And I must say, I for one would like to hear more in the discussion about where you see this book going in terms of a much more global conversation. Hmm. So I want to say that this was a book that I enjoyed very, very much indeed. I have to take issue with just one aspect of the presentation you gave just now when you talked about the way in which various types of thought, including Maoist thought, made their way circulating from China and then I thought, you said that you, they then went out to, and you said the tribal peoples and I thought the obvious place they were going to come of course was to the London School of Economics which, if I remember <laughs> well, possibly was something of a Maoist hotbed back in the, uh, the day when perhaps a few people in this room were a little younger but I'd also like to take a little time, as Stefan did, to question some of the ideas that you've put forward in the book, and then I hope start a dialogic um, uh, element to the conversation, whether transcendent or otherwise, I'm not sure, um, and I hope stimulate further discussion. Because I have to say, I like this book very, very much, so much so that I read all of it, and that includes the index. <laughs> and when I turned to the index, I found lots of interesting things under D. I found Dai Qing, the uh, Chinese writer on the environment who we mentioned. You didn't mention, by the way, that shortly after her uh, great Yangtze Yangtze, the Chinese um, state, of course, picked her up and held her under house yeah. arrest for quite a, uh, <laughs> quite a while. Uh, we found, well, um, but she'd done her job. She'd done her job by, uh, by then, indeed. Uh, we find Durkheim. Uh, we find uh, Deng Xiaoping and, indeed, Derrida. We don't, shamefully, have Desai under D in the index there, but maybe in the, the second edition. <laughs> and there's one other D, and I do want to bring this point to you, that isn't actually in the index, and that's the word democracy. And I want to ask you about where that fits in to the model that you put forward. Now, I know, having read the text of the book and not just the index, that, in fact, questions of democracy, it seems to me, are actually very central yeah. to what you want to put forward. In a sense, you could possibly argue that it's not in the index because actually it's imbricated throughout the entire book. But I want to press a little harder than that. And I've got two questions. One's more open and one's more pointed. The open one is this, and that is the question, how does democracy fit in to the kind of questions and problems that you've raised? And actually, in that context... What does democracy mean? Because some of the terms that we've heard today are ones that have a great deal about them that are necessary and admirable, but also have problems. Let's take transnational civil society, a term which we're hearing more and more, and understandably so, particularly in an era when a great many global problems go well beyond national 
boundaries. On the other hand, I'm reminded of the retort of at least one social scientist speaking about this concept gave me who said, well, global civil society isn't going to pay your pension, is it? And that wider point reminds us that the state still has certain roles and there are reasons Mm. that people, including perhaps these people, do cling to it in certain cases. Now, this brings up, I think, the wider question of how different types of state fit into this model and their models of democracy um, alongside that. One of the things that I found that the book did do in bringing forward the concept of Asia, big Asia, you might say, is that sometimes the lines seem to be a bit blurred. It's not that you don't explain with clarity, I think, the difference in terms of what happens in India, what happens in China, what happens in Vietnam, what happens in Japan. But I wondered if we could press you a little bit more on what difference it makes, if any, Mm. in your model, that these are different types of polities. Mm. These are different types of systems, and that in these these polities, the way in which Mm. global civil society or local civil society as part of a global movement operates is different, and how uh, how that matters. And I think it matters for Asia, in a sense, more almost than it does for other parts of the world. Now, let me explain what I mean by that statement. And I'm going to do a rather broad statement here, which you're at great liberty. Indeed, I would encourage you to pull it apart in the most savage way possible uh, when, you, uh, when you make a reply. If we look at those parts of the world, very broadly speaking, the liberal polity and the pluralist liberal democratic polity is dominant in form, and in many cases in reality, in North and South America. It's normative, even if it's not necessarily exercised, in large parts, if not all parts, of Africa. Australasia, ditto. Europe, ditto. Asia, it seems to me, is the one part of the world where you still have large and significant polities which do not accept the premise of the liberal and pluralist polity as the norm. So I would differentiate there somewhere like Russia, which I think by anyone's honest and objective assessment is not a liberal and pluralist polity, but maintains the simulacrum of being one for a variety of reasons, the main one being that Mr. Putin thinks that appearing to have competitive elections and a a simulacrum of civil society is the way to gain some sort of credibility in the international community. That is not the case with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. It is not the case with the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Uh, It is not the case, most notably, with the People's Republic of China. And the question of state type and the way in which these different types of movements across boundaries have to engage with that sort of state is one that concerns me and which I'd like you to extrapolate further from what you say in the book in terms of bringing democracy more explicitly into the question. So that's my broad question. And I want to then pose the second question, and then I will sit down, which is a more pointed and perhaps dangerous one if we follow some of the logical conclusions, if you take one path, of what your book suggests. And the question is, is democracy, is pluralism, is the liberal society a problem when it comes to sustainability? In other words, as Asian societies become richer, more prosperous, and more individuated, is this going to go against the grain of creating the kind of restricted growth 
and planetary protection that you are, for very understandable and admirable reasons, advocating in the book. And thinking about Asian traditions brings to mind exactly how this might happen. Let's take the use of a reinvented and in some ways rather hollow version of Confucianism, which has taken hold in a big way in China in recent decades. You don't have to go too far to be able to run into a statue of Confucius, a copy of uh, um, a, a, a kind of simplified version of his, uh, of his sayings. Um, uh, even uh, if you go to his birthplace in Chufu in Shandong province, you know, Confucius-branded merchandise, including liquor and all sorts of other things that I think he would have been a little surprised to see. So there's no question that after a, a dip during the Cultural Revolution, Confucius is back in a big way in China. But he also, the traditional view of Confucius, or one traditional view of Confucius, is one that informs a state-driven view, which basically makes him about a harmonious society, in which, on the one hand, harmony is about suppressing dissent, mm. but on the other hand, often finds itself with an ecological wrapper around it, not in the Jay-Z sense, but in the plastic bag sense, uh, an ecological um, <laughs> cover in which people can argue that democracy and individuation is too heavy a price to pay if an environmental, environmentally sound aim is to be reached. Now, one could argue against that, and very obviously so, that the record of authoritarian China on the environment is just as horrific as that of many much more democratic societies. But many Chinese might argue on the other side of that that it's not necessarily more so, and that in terms of where China needs to go next, it needs more mm. Confucian harmony and an anti-democratic harmony and not less of it. I don't agree with that argument any more than I agree actually with that interpretation of Confucius, who I think can be used perfectly plausibly to argue for democracy. But isn't the danger potentially of your book's position that it could be taken up by agencies such as the Chinese Communist Party precisely to put forward that kind of anti-democratic discourse. And if, as I'm sure you disagree, that that's the way it should be used, how can it be articulated in such a way to make sure that that is not the direction that is chosen? In other words, the idea of Asian tradition, as we saw many distinguished people, including in Singapore in the 80s and 90s, try to use as a means of control rather than as a means of liberation. So, in the interests of liberal, pluralist, and democratic debate, I think I will leave those comments there, but I look forward very much both to Prasenjit's uh, responses and to the wider discussion here. And I want to end again by saying that this is an immensely stimulating and brilliant book. And I would encourage everyone in the room uh, not only to join in the discussion, but also to take time to read and engage with its immensely important message. Hmm. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Okay, I, should, so now, I should say that the book is on sale outside, and uh, Professor Duara will be signing. Okay. Uh, now, I will, I'm going to make a slight change. Before uh, Prasenjit answers the discussions, I want to see whether there are any questions, because very often there's not enough time left for questions. So are there... Oh, yeah, gentlemen there. Please identify yourself as well. All right, well, thank you for a very interesting talk, and uh, I am Get Your Share on Twitter. Um, I think that your talk, uh, your uh, basis of using religion to fight global warming is a very dangerous approach. I think uh, the understanding of Christianity is uh, 
possibly quite disturbing because Christianity is a, an apocalyptic philosophy which craves uh, annihilation. And I think this is uh, something that you may have over-missed with trying to understand Christianity. That's uh, quite confusing. And also, I think your approach is to uh, spiritualizing land is anti-intellectual. Uh, I think the, the people should be educated into understanding why land is very important and should be fighted for, not using it as a religious basis. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Anybody else? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'll be slightly more gentle and I'll have a question. Um, I'd like to know, so you mentioned there's a lack in uh, sustainability in how the movement uh, can be applied to government policies and stuff like that, but how how do you think we can make sustainability uh, feature much more on political agendas? How do you make it more persuasive? Because right now, of course, the number of activists is growing, but it doesn't seem to be working so much. So how do you make it persuasive and also allow it to um, combine with the uh, economic and capitalism and stuff like that? How do you make it attractive? Thank okay, you. good. Anybody else? Wants to ask a question? Yeah. Why are only men asking questions? <laughs> what is this? Yeah. I know you've not mentioned uh, recent trade agreements and coming trade agreements where um, there'll be much more pressure on governments, suing governments by multinational companies. Yeah. There's one coming up in Asia very soon, and mm. we've got the transatlantic agreement. Um, what aspect? Thank you for the book. I agree with all, much of what I've heard about it. It's just the commercial aspects mm-hmm. and bullying by multinationals that concerns me. And anybody else? Uh, one more? No, no. No? Oh, yes. Lady <laughs> here. Thank you. Thank you for a really nice talk. Um, in response to the final response to your original talk, uh, I'm wondering if you think that it's a necessary um, kind of consequence of the prosperity growing in Asian countries that they will adopt the form of liberal individualism that we see in kind of the countries where this concept sort of started in the West or the global North. Um, and if rather you think that with the prosperity they will develop actually a new form of what we call individualism or competition or neoclassical competition that actually could be uh, reconcilable with environmental sustainability. Thank you. Am I all right? Okay. Good? No. Yeah. Okay. I will speak after you. So that after me. Okay. No so, okay. So <laughs> how long do I have? Five, ten minutes? You can tell you can you, you yeah, can okay. take fifteen. Minutes. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'm sure I'll finish. I hope finish Yes, yes, of course, and we can have some exchange and so on too. Um, just to uh, go uh, with the last set of uh, questions that came up. Um, thank you, thank you all for uh, your very close reading of the text and very generous, and bringing up very important uh, questions. Uh, uh, that uh, you know have been provoked uh, and that have provoked you and uh, this is exactly what uh, the book of course I 
I hope to do with the book. But just to go to some of the uh, earlier comments, I'm sorry, uh, Joe from Twitter, did you say? What? Uh, yeah, I'm getting your share on Twitter. Okay. So, uh, no, I, uh, I'm sorry that the, the religious argument in the book is very complex. So you really need to read it, you know, before, uh, uh, because I'm using religion in, in two kinds of, well, I, first I have the idea of dialogical transcendence, right? So it is completely, in fact, the earliest part of the book, there was a lot of critique that I am calling Christianity and the Abrahamic religions as way too radical and way too binary and way too destructive, uh, uh, for this and that uh, I should sort of see how they also had these accommodative dimensions to them. So I certainly have a critique of religiosity as a form of radical transcendence. Uh, that's one set of issues on religion. The other is that I'm much more interested in uh, world religions or large-scale religions or cosmologies as uh, Stefan has uh, has very uh, usefully pointed out, uh, as really their methodologies of creating different forms of identity. So it's not a, my book is not a political intervention book. It is much more a, a sort of a study of the, uh, of the concepts and methods through which uh, identity formation uh, takes place uh, towards, uh, uh, from a cosmological perspective. So it's a, I call it a historical sociology. So that's the other thing. And so how do we understand the methodologies of world religions and how they create types of identities? And thirdly, I don't think, and, you know, I think there's a very simple knee-jerk reaction to think that religion is very bad and we have to get away from it. And uh, my own personal view is that. But I don't think that is a, uh, is a view that reflects world history. I mean, there's only been, even secularism, even in the so-called most secular states of Western Europe is, is not something that uh, is, is irreversible at all. And, uh, but it's expressed in many different kinds of ways. Uh, so in some ways we have to deal with a certain com a core of human experience that uh, we need to engage that there is, a, there is a notion of the sacred, of the inviolable that is there in whatever, whether religious or secular. I mean, nations have, democracies have uh, certain core uh, uh, inviolable spaces. And we've got to be able to think of how to engage rationally with those uh, sources of emotions. Uh, and I think that Bill spoke to this issue more than anyone else. And he can also answer the question. <laughs> um, so on the question of uh, politics, I think I'll come to the issue of politics when I address the last two comments, which had a lot to do with politics. Uh, trade agreement, this deep, we are, of course, living in Singapore, much more interested in the <laughs> TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and also, you know, the, the Chinese uh, sort of version, the RCEP and so on. And um, it is increasingly becoming noticed that these TPPs do, in fact, give much more agency to multinational yeah. corporations. Yeah. And this is a huge danger. And, uh, uh, and uh, but, you know, 
I and that is an issue. I mean, it's a red flag, you know, that has suddenly we've become alerted to, and that I think all these groups have to become attentive to and address. I don't have any answers to that. But what I what I can say is that, you know, nation states are actually beginning, despite their their commitment, their fierce commitment to sovereignty and so on. If we follow someone like the work of Ulrich Beck and so on, we see that they are actually beginning to compromise on sovereignty without admitting so, by engaging a lot of agreements. Now, what you point out is that the, the beneficiaries are not necessarily the causes, but in fact multinational corporations. But I think this is a mixed story. There is some of that, but there are also sort of agreements that are coming to that are affecting the capacity of nation states and affecting much more uh, intergovernmental agencies to play a role. And I certainly feel that there are several intergovernmental agencies that do have the, the cause of climate change uh, in their, uh, if not in their hearts, in their agendas. Um, now the question of new consuming classes, what it is. Uh, in Asian societies, uh, uh, Natasha, uh, Natalia, sorry, <laughs> my my daughter's classmate and friend, uh, and uh, is uh, is a very, uh, I think, uh, uh, is precisely why I have written this book, <laughs> you know, because there is the sense that uh, India and China can sort of go along the same path that the Western countries have sort of trod and that has led to this situation. And it seems to me that that is infeasible even even at the present moment. I think we are in very dire, you know, you look at everything. You know, the Anthropocene is not just going to show up in one cataclysmic uh, event. It's already happening, you know, when you see droughts for three years in so many different parts of the world. Uh, and so on, uh, when you see floods that are, it's one year is the floods, one year is the drought in the same areas. I mean, what are you going to do, right? It's with us. So, I mean, you know, how to then, that's the political question, how to then make it sort of much more relevant in the political system? I mean, you know, you have certain progressive countries with the Greens and so on do play a much more important role. Uh, New Zealand, I'm sorry, I'm very lame. The yeah. European yeah. Union has a very important role there. And I think uh, in certain sectors in Indian society, there is it's also uh, very important here. So uh, that just has to happen. you know, And that, that's part of the project. That's why I've done in a significant reason for having done the book, getting them to look at their own traditions to see how to sort of work with this. So those are, I think... Uh, some of the questions, should I respond to the other? Yeah, yeah, please. Okay. Please. This, is, this is your time. Yeah, I think on the wonderful comments, uh, very generous comments that uh, Professor Callahan made, he says, uh, I think he points to something very important that not many people have taken from the book, which is precisely the relationship between our feelings and motivations and rationality, right, and how we think of a problem. That you can think yourself blue, as we have done in the ivory towers of academia, but unless you get people to, to actually feel something and to link that, that issue with, uh, with a program, right, 
um, that the whole sort of interpenetration of of and I don't I, I call it sacrality, but I call it the sacrality of hope, right? Because hope is something as as we know, the common saying is that hoping against hope, it can never really die because it always reappears. And you know, I use the the words of uh, Lu Xun in that conclusion, mm-hmm. which is really the only thing that he had and the only path that we can have. What else can we do? So. In a sense, in response to also these, the temporalities that that uh, Stefan talks about, right? That these are so he says that basically my work is on a very large historical scale. The temporalities are very extensive, but the problem is so immediate, right? And we need to have responses that match that that immediacy, right? How can we do that? Well. First, my my first question, my first comment is that um, you know there are hopefully many people in the world who are doing, who are trying to address that thing. And I think here I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm an agnostic on the issue of economics and technology. I'm not opposed to it. I think, for instance, that uh, I certainly oppose geoengineering schemes that are huge and large. But I think. Behavioral economics can do something. I think there's a lot that's wrong, but uh, they can do something uh, about these things by making pricing things uh, in certain ways and so on. It's just that with what mind and heart do they come, right? <laughs> that's a that's another matter. So you could a certain school of economics, I think, could be able to address these kind of issues. Maybe Mignard's school, <laughs> Lord Desai's school, and the um, and I think technology can also. Uh, uh, play a role in these kinds of things. For instance, I think what Barack Obama tried to do in the U.S. Uh, was a very useful thing, you know, giving uh, opportunities and cuts and all of these subsidies for green technologies mm-hmm. and all of these things. Of course, you know, the radical position would be as long as you're committed to technology and capitalism, that's it, you're finished. But I don't see ourselves getting out of that mm-hmm. anytime soon, right? So, I mean, let's be a little more practical and work with whatever we can. But it does, still doesn't answer the question of immediacy. Uh, but I don't think that I can handle that issue uh, as a historian of the long, long scale. Um, on uh, the other issue which you brought up, which is, I think, close to Rana's issue, the issue of uh, politics uh, and uh, the Hana rent. And here I'm, I think, also very influenced, actually, uh, who was influenced by Hannah Arendt is Habermas, right? And Habermas is very concerned about the issue, about uh, uh, politics and democratic politics. But I would like to, in some ways, play off this Habermasian Hannah Arendt notion of politics in the life world and the politics of the life world yeah. with Rana's notion of democracy as a form, more formal system, a more procedural system that you asked partially about, I think. And it is true that I don't talk about democracy because so much of Asia is non-democratic in that procedural sense, I believe. Uh, again, I'm an agnostic on the issue. I think a lot of things, well, I think two things, which may be contradictory. One is that the Chinese system can get a lot of things done, even in the, uh, you know, not just growth, but even in 
curtailing certain types of growth if it can, if it wants to put itself its mind to it. You know, the EPA in China is a very progressive institution, and it continues to be, and does a lot. The problem is here. The problem is systemic in some senses. The message that the central government gives this is good cop, bad cop, right? Is that we're doing everything? You know, from Hu Jintao onwards, you've had uh, sustainable civilization as the goal, as a dream, and all of this stuff. But the problem is, of course, that the message is going to the local polities. Is still about quotas and productions and target and so on, right? And it is certainly true that at the core of this. The principal problem is one of accountability, right? How do you get these guys to be accountable to society, to goals that are relevant? And to that extent, but I don't think you need a formal democracy for that. I think, uh, I think. So I, you know, I, I don't want to say I do. Certainly, I personally am a democrat. I believe in uh, in democratic virtues, and. Uh, and in institutional processes, but we've also seen how, as you point out, that democracy can lead to much more uh, destruction, right? In the sense that uh, you you lead to a classes of these these rising consumers who vote on the basis of what they can uh, consume, which is what uh, produces the problem. So, in a sense, my response is that I don't think there can be a philosophical answer to these things. I think you have to work with. Whatever institutions are available that promote your goals, they may be different in one, and they may be different in the other. I still think that there is a certain overlap. I think NGOs, which have been growing in such huge numbers in China—I mean, a lot of them are Gongos and so on, or ENGOs—there、uh, is an overlap in their role with others. They play watchdog roles. They they play the role of. Uh, holding the feet to the fi-、uh, to the fire is that the expression?、Mm-hmm. Anyway, of many of these things, and、uh, of course they're subject to to crackdown sometimes and so on. But they do play a role. In fact, very recently, just a month ago in China, you had、uh, there was a reservoir that was going to be created on the on the Yangtze, which was given up, and the article, the whole article, both in the Western press and in the Chinese press, says it is very much a result of、uh, environmental NGO pressure,、oh. right? And so, to some extent, they have they have effects as well, and you don't need a formal democratic system to be able to have a certain kind of accountability. And I would say that ultimately, the question of different political systems. Is of course it's important. Of course it's important. We know that, but we emphasize the importance so much that we don't recognize that there's a massive circulatory effect going on, right? I mean, there's all kinds of things. You know, one of the things that I've seen even in Chinese hydropower organizations in Southeast Asia, they're becoming ex- extremely susceptible to issues of corporate responsibility and、uh, all of those kinds of things that NGO groups are bringing to them. So, so there is a shared area as well. Intervention on, on that. Sorry, could I just make one sentence? Sure. Just, just to say, isn't the circulation though, Prasenjit, also the other way round? For instance, in India, you hear more and more discourse about how if India did things like China and didn't mess around with all this democracy business, then much more would get done. Isn't that dangerous?、Uh, I don't think it's very dangerous. I think, you know, maybe、uh, I don't think you can get rid of democracy in India. It's a little too、uh, 
too well implanted or whatever, embedded. But uh, on the other hand, there is probably a need, not necessarily for this kind of strong man, but you do need the strong executive and strong parliament and things like that. Or effective, let me say effective. So, yeah, I don't see it in absolute terms. But if I can intervene, give you a hard time now. Yeah. Um, the question that I'm hearing is that you are promoting civil society as the answer. Yeah. But how can you have civil society in an authoritarian state? And you're you're saying that you can, but it just seems that it's, it still seems to be sort of a, a either a contradiction or a tension. I mean, it's a tension. I don't think it's a contradiction. I think we have huge organizations in China in the environmental group that do have effects, right? It is a long-term danger, but that's not to say there isn't. Look at India. I mean, right now, the Modi government is going after the funding of all of these NGOs. There's a big only foreign ones. But they, they brought up every NGO has to submit now uh, where that, the sources of funding long, have come from. That has been long, long before the Modi government. Yeah, okay, sorry. <laughs> let's, let's. No, I, think, I think xenophobia is, is, is universal in democracies. Sure. If you can't do something, and blame the foreigners. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, no, please. I, I should yeah. So that, that, that yeah. is it. Can I, can, I, can I say a few things? First of all, this really is a very, what I would call, a book with thick texture. It's really, you know, for, for someone like me who's an economist, this is hard work. <laughs> uh, but I have, I have read it, and, Thank and, you. and it is very, very impressive. I learned a lot. I'm old enough to tell you that we had a global crisis and we solved it. And that's the nuclear Armageddon. You know, when I was a student uh, in America, they used to have a program at the end of every year. Was the clock at five minutes to 12 or three minutes to 12? Were we going to blow ourselves up or not? I mean, this is, this is serious existential threat. I mean, you know, the, you know your, your, your global environment may happen by 2050, by yeah. which then I shall be safely dead. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, this, this was, and I was there during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I'm more or less this is it. This is what we've been waiting for, and we're all going to be blown up, and there's no point in rushing home. Partly I didn't have money, but partly the home will be blown up as well. So, one thing I would say as a comparative thing, study how the world got out of that existential yeah. threat. Nowadays, nobody cares about nuclear weapons. There are so many nuclear nations. I mean, soon there'll be 70 nuclear nations, and nobody gives a monkey about it. How did we lose the fear of, it, it may be delusion, yeah. but, but that was done through state action, not through grassroots action. I'm not. No, 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 no. There, there were grassroots forces, but I would say that it was when the eyeball-to-eyeball -eyeball confrontation took place, yeah. and war did not happen. Then people said, "Okay, there are responsible enough people who will take care, and they will not go to war." Okay, so that, that's one thing. Secondly, I think that in a sense, you know, there's transcendence and all that. And I'm 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 not a postmodernist. I'm actually a modernist. I'm I'm really kind of real 19th century modernist. And I think that there's only all these religions have been there for ages. There's only been one really transcendental global phenomenon, and that's capitalism. capitalism. 
And in a, the problem is capitalism is really an unbeatable system. Nobody has found anything. I mean, the countries and philosophies have died fighting it. And the problem is that within a capitalist system, you're trying to get coalitions of small forces across countries and so on. Will they agglomerate into a big enough force to even divert the course of capitalism as it is, or will they? And the European Union actually believes itself to be living in a post-capitalist uh, world. It's completely deluded. <laughs> but that's another story. So I think one, one thing is that it may be that the problem is not of dialogic uh, thing, except as instruments to agglomerate mm. uh, these movements, but basically the enemy Anyway, it's so powerful that, you know, like you talk about the, the new consumers. I mean, every country has gone through this new consumerism. You know, give, give people a bit more money in what they want to do, they want to consume. Uh, you know, and you know, this, this, is, this is freedom. Freedom is consumption. Uh, so, in a sense, we, we really face... Now, I want to tell you one hopeful thing, because you also read old texts. Uh, and as, as Mark said in the famous preface, mankind only solves such problems as can be solved, because the point is the problems don't arise until the conditions of the solutions are also there. Hmm. You know, you, you know, you know where, where, I'm, where I'm speaking from, it's prefaced the contribution to the critical political economy. Uh, now, if you take that sort of view, okay, it's, it's a circular kind of uh, reasoning. It may be that the discussion you had on technology and so on yeah, yeah. may yet, in this combination of technology, behavioral change, and a bit of pricing, yeah. you know, which is maybe working at the same time as your bottom people are working, yeah, yeah. right? And, 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 and it may be that this is, this is how so-called mankind will find a solution to its, its problems. If it does. I mean, you know, I mean, if, if it doesn't, you tell me, because I'll, I'll be gone. Say, you know. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but, you see, the, I, I'm, I'm not at all afraid of uh, free trade, because, you know, countries left to themselves do things terribly badly. You know, the, the entire East, uh, Eastern European economies were terrible with their environment, without, without, yeah. without the cooperation of any multinational. So it's not necessary that multinationals are always evil. Yeah. They may, if, if they find good environment profitable, they'll, they'll do, do it. it. Yeah. If they can sue Australia for billions for cigarettes because they won't play packages and... Now, I, I think, I think, I think, I think, the, I think, this, I think this, this fear, fear is always raised because local capitalism doesn't like competition. <laughs> so they're always trying to keep out Americans and all that. The French has a problem. Nobody watches their films, so they don't want, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> this competition anyway. Uh, but, no, I, 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 I think this is a very good book, and I think it's a, I've learned a lot from it. But I still, and this is not just about your book, but the whole environmental problem, yeah. that people are more apocalyptic uh, and if you're more apocalyptic, then you deny yourself a solution. But also, uh, again, one of the great problems in this is economy to deal with it. Our interests are not common. Yeah. There is no single global environmental yeah. problem, which is why you know you can't get a treaty. 
Mm-hmm. As soon as you start getting a treaty, somebody says, hey, but you know, you may want this, you know, cleaner air, but we want we want more consumption. We want dirty air. <laughs> no, 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 we want, we want, we want more consumption. Okay. You know, I mean, if, if, if I'm in Delhi living in 45 degrees uh, heat. Uh, heat, I want air conditioning. Yeah. You know, and you, you may be, okay. So I think <laughs> there are this problem. So environmental change is a local problem when it, it needs to be dealt with local floods as well. The, the global environmental problem yeah. may be an uh, intellectual construct. No, no, intellectual construct, not an illusion. Okay. Anyway, thank you very much. Thank you. For allowing me to speak for this long. Can and, I respond? Uh, yes, of course. For, uh, by one minute, yeah, I yeah, think. Sure. I think uh, in some ways, Meghnath and I may have uh, more in common. Because uh, I do think that, I think also that in a funny way, you know, we can think of multinationals as, you know, uh, the, the most evil thing in the world, but they too respond to a notion of circulatory, if not ethics, rules, right? So if you have, uh, of course, they can be bent and so on, but, uh, you know, you do have, organized, I talk about conservation international and so on, which come out of these capitalist organizations and try to uh, do some uh, compensation or or re- renewal or re-energization and so on. I do believe that is a is more like uh, let's not well two steps backward probably and one step forward. But there is something there are there are these elements of hope. And I think you're absolutely right. You the way you put it is that there are these technological and other kinds of things that can work. And, and regulatory regimes, and but then the lower order. Uh, well, I don't think they're lower order. They're just as global, you know. Especially if you look at the kinds of uh, points of contact and alliance and connections. Uh, these, what we need to think of more specifically, I think, from this book is what are the pressure points at which they can operate yeah. to create a more uh, uh, sort of. Uh, uh, particularly in the complex condition that you bring up, that there are local differences and global, but there must be something that is both intermediate and at the global level that can impact the other. So I think that's the kind of uh, the pressure point situation, which comes back to your politics thing also, that can work. Okay. Okay. I, I see people stirring, so yeah. we'll end it here. We so must I want to stir. Thank yes. Professor Duara and okay. thank all thank the you. participants. Thank you, thank you all very much.